If you would turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight. Anytime you're learning a new skill, maybe it's been some time since you learned one. Maybe you had to learn a new skill at a job or something like that. Sometimes you wonder why people keep repeating the same few things. And maybe you think of something in your job. Always do this. Never do this. It's like, why do people always tell me that? Maybe <clears throat> you think back if you have kids when you when you were learning to be a parent and people were saying things like all the time, don't discipline in anger. Kind of wonder, it's a big deal. Why does everybody say that? So you're a parent and you realize, oh, I get it. Uh, it's really easy to be angry. And uh, kids can be, they can drive you crazy. And if you just lash out, it can be really damaging. It's really easy. Or on a lighter note, if, if you're learning to play a musical instrument, I remember this. And I was having to learn to play the flute and the clarinet when I was in undergrad. I did not like being a beginner. It was humbling because you don't know what you're doing. And people are telling you these really rudimentary things. Why are you telling me that? Why maintain good posture at that point? Maybe you understand it. When you're singing, why does he keep harping on us about our posture? What's the big deal? And then you experience the, the wonderful feeling of free airflow and the great sound that you produce. And it's like, oh, they're a genius. Or if you're learning to bake and you wonder why every single recipe starts with set your oven to this and grease your pan. Why does everybody tell me that? And then one time you're making brownies and you forgot and you've got your brownie mix and it's like, oh, I got to grease my pan. Oh, I've got to turn the oven on. And then you've got to wait 10 minutes for your oven to turn on. There are reasons we do certain things and people say certain things all the time, but we don't always know exactly why that is. So we see it work. Maybe you've wondered before, why do we always talk about Jesus? Why do we talk about him all the time? What should, why do we always exalt Christ in our preaching? What difference does it actually make to place him front and center in our witnessing? Can't we talk about other things sometimes? Why Jesus? Paul deals with this a little bit in 2 Corinthians 4. In the context of explaining and defending his own ministry, his apostolic ministry, to the church at Corinth. There were folks there, it seems, who wanted Paul to be you know, more impressive, more charismatic, more authoritative, maybe more influential. And they were willing to talk him down, especially while he wasn't there. And Paul's writing, kind of commending his ministry to them, telling them why he does certain things. And he's really not just for himself, but to show and to clarify the gospel that he's preaching. And to do so, he's really showing the simple power of the gospel, that God opens blind eyes to the light of his own glory. And he maintains in our text for tonight, the first six verses, that the great power of the gospel is in the exaltation of Christ. The great power of the gospel is in the exaltation of Christ. Paul's really unassuming in his ministry, and he operates as he does because he wants to exalt not himself, but Christ. That's where the power is. That's where the influence is in his ministry. The life-transforming power of the gospel lies in the exaltation of Christ. Paul preaches up Christ. That's the title this evening, preaching up Christ. And by his example, I think we can learn what should define our preaching, our witness. Let's read 
together. Second Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse one. Kind of dropping into the middle of his thought. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the face of Christ. So why preach up Christ? Why exalt him? How do we do this? Well, Paul's telling us what that looks like. Here's what should define preaching. Here's what does define preaching that exalts Christ. This is what Paul does in his ministry. And I think at the end, it'll become clear why it needs to be this way. He says in the first two verses, exalt Christ by straightforward truth. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but my manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is the way that Paul preaches. This is the manner of preaching. He really describes it in terms of something he shuns and something he embraces. So exalt Christ by straightforward truth. And really, you see here by his example, when you refuse certain ways of communicating, that highlights Christ as God's truth. Look in the first half. We have renounced, we have refused, we have set aside shameful things. We don't walk in craftiness, nor do we adulterate God's word. There are shameful ways of operating that Paul renounces, and he explains that. They don't speak with cunning, he says, trying to convince people with ulterior motives or, or shielding some part of the truth, nor do they tamper with God's word by mixing truth with error. So what is he talking about? I think an example of this could be when you're preaching the gospel, don't hide the cost of discipleship. What did Jesus say? He put it front and center. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're if you're kind of holding that back from people, you're kind of dissimulating a little bit. You're a little bit deceiving them. I heard someone say once at a camp that I worked at, he was trying to orient a bunch of college students to working with upper elementary school kids. And he was telling us, if you're evangelizing these kids, if you're talking with them, about the gospel. You've got to be really careful not to just preach a gospel that's all rainbows and unicorns, is the phrase that he said. He was a real funny guy. Because any kid who hears that heaven is rainbows and unicorns, what kid doesn't want that? It's like going to the amusement park, right? You, you can't hold back the condemnation against sin. You have to preach repentance and faith. You can't be deceitful. You have to shun that, is what Paul's saying. But as you shun that and you embrace a different kind of con communication, you can highlight Christ as God's revelation. What does he do? Second half of verse two, by the manifestation of truth, 
by the unfolding, the, the revealing of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What is he saying? Well, the conscience, your conscience testifies, doesn't it? It tells you this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. This is right. You should do this. This is right. It's good. And Paul is saying he speaks in a way that recommends him to the consciences of his hearers. By the, you'd say by the way that they speak, they invite trust. So what does this mean for us? We have to preach with integrity. We have to practice what we preach. If you're proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and Jesus is not the Lord of every area of your life, people are going to know that. There's a lack of integrity there. You have to submit. You have to live as a new creature, if that's what you're preaching. You have to live as God's possession, zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? This is how we preach with integrity. When we do this, we're really giving an indisputable testimony that God revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, as a redeemer, as a savior, as a forgiver of sinners. This exalts Christ when we communicate this way, when we communicate with integrity that he really is Lord. He really did change me. That exalts him in the minds of your hearers. So Paul exalts Christ very simply as the truth of God. And that means things for what he says, what he doesn't say, and how he lives. That's how to preach with power. Since the power of the gospel is in the magnification of Christ. But second, Paul says, exalt Christ, though the devil opposes him. So what else should define preaching? He gives a little bit of a defense here. This is kind of an encouragement for preaching. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, and he describes them, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It does seem that Paul is kind of answering an objection here that's coming, maybe from these people in Corinth who are kind of slandering him a little bit. Where's all the evidence? Where's all the fruit from his ministry? People aren't getting saved, especially the Jews. He's getting rejected by all the Jews. What's wrong with him? What Paul says is that a lack of response to this kind of preaching, that says nothing about the preacher or the message. You can't just assume that. Perhaps some people thought his message was antiquated, or maybe that he was the problem. As they're looking at the Jews and seeing how much he's getting persecuted, does he need to change his message? Paul's saying, no. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Maybe people are asking, if he's really the Messiah of the Jews, they're contesting the message itself. Why do so many people reject him? Why do so many Jews reject him? Maybe they're preaching it wrong. Maybe it's not true after all. Maybe Paul's ineffective. You can see how it goes. Paul's arguing that it's a problem with the hearers. They just don't believe. They're headed for hell because of their refusal to obey and believe the, go- the gospel. In the words of John, the Apostle John, they love darkness and they won't come to the light. They prefer darkness. They're they're. It's like those little, I don't know if you have these in your basement, those, uh, or if you've ever lived in a place that has cockroaches. Uh, those little uh, silverfish or whatever they're called, those little creepy crawler things with a million like spidery legs that are disgusting. You flick on the light and 
they're scared of the light. They don't want to come to the light because they know that's where people are, right? This is what this is what people do who are in their sin. They prefer the darkness. They don't accept spiritual things because they aren't spiritually alive. The truth of the message is veiled, but not because of a deficiency in the messenger or because the message is unclear. It's because the hearers are blind to it. They need God to enable them to receive it, is what Paul is saying. A lack of response doesn't necessarily mean anything about the the preacher or the message. Really, lack of response is the devil's work to keep men from seeing what would save them if they could see it. Look at verse 4. In whose case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the mastermind behind the world system. I think sometimes we give human beings too much credit <laughs> that, that they, they can really collude in the kinds of ways that we suppose that they do. This is kind of the thinking of conspiracy theories. The devil, the devil is the God of this world. He knows how to orchestrate things. There have been people who have done research on these kinds of things and they're unbelievers and they come to the end of it and they say, it's almost as if humanity and human culture has a single mind behind it. And and you read something like that and some secular sociologists and you say, yeah, it's because it does. The kingpin of everything aligned against God, the slave master of all those outside of Christ, at the permission of God, he adds blindness to those who are already unbelieving. And he does this, you could say, because he knows the the danger of unbelievers seeing the light. If these slaves see the light, they're going to be changed. So he's got to blind them. He keeps them from seeing what would rescue them. For if they saw the glory of God with the eyes of faith, they would be changed in an instant. And what, what is that? Well, it's, it's what illumines the spiritual eye. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So follow this through. It's the, 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 the radiance of the good news about the glory, the unique excellence of the Messiah. It's the good news about Jesus' glory. And what is the glory of Christ? What is his unique excellence? It's that Jesus, the Messiah, was wounded for our transgressions. He is the one who rescues men. He's a redeemer. This is his unique excellence, that he was punished for our iniquities, that he died for our sins, that he was raised for our justification. He's the only one that's like this. This is his glory, his unique excellence. And it's a bright radiance spiritually. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus used this, uses this phrase a lot. He must be lifted up. And of course, that's a literal spatial lifting up on the cross, but it's also the idea of him being lifted up in his glory. It is the glory of Jesus to be mounted on that cross and to pay for sins. 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, you could say, in his glory, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Imagine in the wilderness, you remember this scene where God is disciplining the people of Israel. He sends these serpents that, that bite them and they're dying. And God tells Moses, make this bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. And all the people have to do is look and they will be saved, right? Imagine, this isn't what happened, but imagine somebody going around the camp masking people to keep them from looking to the bronze serpent to be healed. That would be a horrible thing to do. That would be wicked. You could say the problem was with the method of being healed. Nobody's being healed. It's the problem of the snake. Or you could say it's Moses' fault. He didn't put it high enough. But that's not true. It's the person who's covering their eyes. Right? This is what Paul is describing. If people would look, they would be saved. But the God of this world is blinding them. Of course, this is due to their unbelief. The problem isn't that. It's that people who can't look. It's people who won't look. What Paul writes is, this is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Jesus is God's image. He does show the Father perfectly. He displays the glory of God. The problem isn't with Christ. The rejection of the gospel is the devil's work. So exalt Christ, even though the devil opposes him. This opposition might make you think, I need to do something else. No, exalt Christ. Paul continues to do this, though he often meets unbelief. Because it says, Christ is exalted that men are saved. There's no other message. That's the power of the gospel. The problem is certainly not the message. And the solution really is to keep putting Christ where he belongs, holding him in front of men, saying he is the savior of sinners, believe in him. Certainly what you see Jesus doing. This is an encouragement to preaching. There's going to be resistance, but don't stop. Men need Christ. But third, Paul describes his ministry a little bit more. I think you could say that, that this, thirdly, should describe or define our preaching. Exalt Christ as Lord, as his loving servant. This is what you should do as a messenger. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. This is, the you could say, the content of preaching. Paul is very clear about the essential simplicity of his preaching. Some people might not like that, but it's what they need. The power isn't in you, the preacher. You're a servant who loves God and who loves other people. We don't preach ourselves. That's not what's going to save people. We, we preach ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. He doesn't exalt himself in his preaching, either in his, in his message or in his tone or in his illustration. He is no one's savior. He knows that. Rather, it's clear by his preaching that he serves his hearers. They're not his master, but he is putting himself under them to serve them by bringing the thing that's going to give them life. But what does he preach? Not himself. Power isn't in him. The power is in God's good news. Jesus is the Messiah. He was crucified. He's risen. He's reigning. We preach Christ Jesus 
as Lord. This is what servants do. They exalt their master. We preach Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked the earth as Lord. And if he's Lord, he's alive, right? So Jesus crucified, buried, risen, reigning. He's the master. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Elsewhere, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. A crucified Messiah. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't like that. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It doesn't make sense to them, naturally. So what are we going to do? Are we going to change the message? No, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. These are essential parts of the gospel message. He's God's anointed. He's ruling. What does Paul say in Romans 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's all sorts of pressure that comes against this to abandon this message. And Paul's saying, no, it's very simple. And this is why, because as Christ is exalted, men are drawn to him. God has to open their eyes. So I would ask you tonight, do you know Jesus as your Lord? The Old Testament predicts him. The New Testament validates him. Everything that was written in the Old Testament about the Messiah comes true in Jesus. God vindicates him. God punishes him for sin, but then God raises him from the dead. That's God's approval of him, that he accepted his sacrifice. He brought him to heaven with him. He's everything that he claimed, Jesus. And that requires a decision. Maybe you hear this sometimes. Yeah, I I respect Jesus. He was a really good teacher. No, Jesus either is everything that he said, or he's a lunatic and a slanderer. You have to make a decision. You can't just take him among your panoply of gods. You either confess him or you reject him. Will you bow the knee to Jesus and acknowledge him as God's son, the savior of the world? He's Lord. We have to confess him. You must today. In order to exalt Christ, to unleash the life-changing power of the gospel, Paul focuses attention away from himself on to Christ as Lord. This is what we preach. But finally, Paul gives some insight in a really memorable verse as to the motive for preaching. Why should you preach Christ, exalt Christ, because God marvelously saved you? Verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how God saved you. So you've got to hold Christ up and exalt him so that God can save other people. Exalt Christ because God marvelously saved you. If you're a Christian, God shined light in your heart to open your spiritual eyes. That's what he says at the beginning. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. The God who created light out of nothing at creation, let there be light. And there was light. It's the same God who produced spiritual life in you when you were dead in your sins. Dead, dead means dead, right? There's no life. But God made you alive together with Christ. That's 
regeneration, that's being born again. It's the new birth. These are terms for what this is. It's being made alive. This is the change that Paul means when he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but you were made alive with Christ. This is what Jesus means when he says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. If you're thinking about the order of salvation, regeneration is that that step in salvation when God puts eternal spiritual life into a spiritually unresponsive sinner. Let me say that again. Regeneration, or what Paul is describing here, is when God puts eternal spiritual life into a spiritually unresponsive sinner. And it happens as he opens your blinded eyes. This is one image for regeneration. Sight. He really heals people of their blindness, like physically he did for the man at the pool of Bethesda. For the first time, that man could really see. Spiritually, when God gives you new life, for the first time, you can really see these people who were rejecting Paul's message. They cannot understand. They cannot see and really perceive spiritual things because they're not spiritually responsive. But when God puts his spiritual life into them, for the first time, they really can. And all of the connections make sense. And I see that Christ is everything that he says he is. And the moment you open your eyes, God opens your eyes and light strikes them. What is it that your eyes see for the first time with real spiritual understanding? If you're a Christian, the light that God shined was the knowledge of his glory. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, that's regeneration, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You come to have a real understanding of God's unique excellence. So, what are we talking about? I, I use that phrase. That's a very helpful definition to me of glory. We talk about the glory of God. What is glory? It's unique excellence. There is a unique excellence to a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Isn't there? There's nothing like it. There's those ones at Sam's Club that come in a bag that are real close. If you haven't tried them, they do something with the pickle juice that gets you real close, but they're really expensive, okay? Maybe it's inflation. There is a unique excellence to a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. And I'm not going to give them you know, free airtime here, but you know what I'm talking about, okay? Peanut oil, the pickle flavor, the crunch, the 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 tenderness, the juiciness, there's nothing like it. It's unique and it's it's got a unique excellence. And maybe you know this, maybe you have a tool that you really like and it's it's the only one for the job. It's got a unique excellence. The unique excellence of God. You see God's beauty and God's mercy and his justice and his grace and his righteousness in full bloom. And it's stunning to you. The light that God shone in your heart was real understanding of his unique excellence. And how did this understanding come to you? What exactly did it look like? God shined this light 
of this knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What this means is that when God opens the spiritual eyes of a sinner, the blaze of glory that meets those eyes is Jesus. They see what God is like as God opens their understanding to what Christ is like and who he is and that he's God's son sent for sinners. This is how God manifests himself to people. So why talk about Jesus? Because God shines light as we preach Christ. Regeneration is God's call that always works. But when it works, he does it by joining it to the external preaching of the gospel of Christ. And I don't want to get caught up in terminology, but we're, we're talking about the call of the gospel. And there's an external call that comes from a person who says, repent and believe the gospel. That's you and me. That's what we have to call people to. But there's that internal call that God uses the external call to accomplish. It's God's work. But when we say repent and someone repents, it's because God is calling someone and they're responding. But it's as we preach Christ, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God works in sinners' hearts to bring the dead to life. When we preach Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning as Lord. So why always talk about Jesus Christ? Why make so much of him in preaching and evangelizing? Well, because God does. This is how God works. God works as Christ is preached. God, the creator of light, the conqueror of darkness. He overpowered the darkness of your sinful heart and mind with the blaze of his unique excellence that's seen perfectly in the God-man. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he is the, in, the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It is the marvelous plan of God to send his son into the world to be humiliated and crushed beyond belief, only to be exalted and glorified beyond imagination. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of the Jews, came to earth, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and he is alive again. He was not defeated by death. He's alive, and he's reigning as Lord, and he calls you to turn from sin and believe that he will save you from your sins. So why do we exalt Christ in our preaching? Because in the wisdom of God, the great power of the gospel is in the exaltation of Christ. There's no other message. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we do exalt you this evening. And in everything that we do as we live and share the gospel, we want to exalt you. I pray that you would be honored among us, that we would live lives worthy of the good news of the gospel, this high and holy calling that you've placed on our lives, this heavenly calling. When you called us out of darkness into light and we came, like when, Lord Jesus, you stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, come forth, you did that for us. God, as you shine the light of the glory of the knowledge of you in the face of Jesus Christ, thank you for sending Christ to make a way for this to be true, for this to happen creating life where there was none because we would still be in our dead in our trespasses and sins. If it weren't for your grace and mercy toward us, help us to exalt Christ this week. We prayed in Christ's name.